0: Good evening. I'm broadcasting remotely tonight from Barcelona for reasons that I won't go into, but it is clear the tide of human misery leaving Ukraine continues at the same pace. Now a total of 1.7 million people, women and children, have left Ukraine. Over a million of them have gone into Poland, but they're going in to other countries as well. Vladimir Putin has offered some safety corridors, but those corridors go to Russia and Belarus. And unsurprisingly, been denounced by President Zelensky of Ukraine. It does seem to date that Poland particularly has handled this incredibly well. Uh, We're not seeing vast refugee camps and all the problems associated with that. Yes, of course, community centres and sports halls are being used, but a very large number of Polish people have stepped up to the plate and said, right, we will take people in for a period of time. Now, the British government response to this initially was that 100,000 would be coming into the UK. We then heard 150,000. We then heard 200,000. And it was all to do with did you have a link, a family member in the United Kingdom? If you did, you could apply for a visa. We learned of the 11,000 or so that have started the application process as of yesterday morning, only 50 had been approved. Gosh, is this going to be as big a mess as the Afghan crisis was in the middle of last year. But overnight, an announcement from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, saying there would be a humanitarian route open to the United Kingdom. Um, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but very quickly that appeared to be contradicted by James Cleverley and indeed by Boris Johnson himself, who says, look, whilst we are open-hearted, whilst we are generous, we do actually have to have checks on people that are coming in. So once again we have this situation where senior members of the government make statements that are pretty much uncoordinated with each other. It is unimpressive to say the very least. I have to say, from my mind, there is a very, very big difference uh, between what I've talked about so much over the last two years, namely these undocumented young males coming across the English Channel, who I do not believe qualifies as refugees, and what is happening in Ukraine. These genuinely are refugees, and if you believe, some reports from the European Union, they say up to five million could flee Ukraine's borders if this war continues. Now most of those from what I can understand most of those that are leaving want to go back as quickly as they can. They want to go back to their lives once the war is over. The problem is history shows us that very often wars and occupations can last very much longer than we hope they're going to. How many of those would really want to make the big step of coming to the United Kingdom? I just don't know. But it will undoubtedly be a significant number. And that raises two big questions. And by the way, I'm open-minded about this, I'm open-hearted about this, I get it, these are genuine refugees. How do we cope with a very, very large number of people? And the other point is, Can our visa system cope? And that's my audience question tonight for you. Do you think our government, our Home Office's visa system can actually cope with what's about to happen? Let me know what you think, Faraj at GBNews.UK. I have to say, my confidence in the ability of the government to cope with anything these days is pretty low. Let's go to Poland, let's go to the border, let's go to Mediva and speak to Bradley Harris, GB News' correspondent who is there. Bradley, please tell us what you've seen on the border between Poland and Ukraine today. I'm a
1: 15-minute drive away from the city of Premyshil, one of the cities that's closest to the border between Ukraine and Poland. Behind me, you can see Ukrainians fleeing their country, looking for an area of safety, somewhere that is warm, where they can be fed, they can have water, clothes, because for many people, they have arrived here with just the clothes they have on their back. One thing that really struck me when I arrived here on the border was the amount of support that is available for Ukrainians right now. And that's why I would like to chat to Simon, who's with me. Simon, thank you uh, for joining me
2: uh, today. Having support for Ukrainians right now is important, isn't it? That's key. It's incredibly important, and it's incredibly important because whilst I'm sure globally the machine is moving and we're hearing the incredible amount of money that's been raised, that's not here yet. The machine isn't here and the money's not here. Um, And so the people who have been first on the ground, i have only been here for two days, have really been creating the infrastructure (laughs) from the ground upwards the best way they can.
1: And you've come from the UK. You said you've come here two days ago to come and help. How? have you been helping people?
2: So first day was pretty much just kind of getting bearings and then just literally arrived out at the border post and started meeting up with people, seeing who needed what help and and just really just joining in. Um, Today I've been working um, with one of the bigger agencies that are here who are um, providing food. We've probably served, I would guess, well over 3,000 meals today. um, And the queue just keeps coming. The board does close at night, so we get a chance to just take a pause and reset for tomorrow. But I'm fairly certain it will be just as busy tomorrow. Wow, 3,000 meals just today. It's it's a guess, but I would think that's about right from the kind of numbers they've talked about and and how how it feels in my hands.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah, it is nippy. Uh, It's minus six around about at the minute. Simon, good to chat to you. you. Uh, It's incredible. People keep coming. As Simon says, I was chatting uh, to a Ukrainian mother, Natalie, who had two children earlier this afternoon. She was telling me how thankful she is to uh, the Polish people for their support. Let's just hear her thoughts.
3: All of Poland people uh, give our, our kids uh, uh, some uh, flowers, uh, some uh, snacks, some uh, chocolates. Uh, they smile today because uh, yesterday they cried, they cried when we leave Ukraine, when we leave Kiev, when we sit uh, uh, to the train, and uh, when we lost our home, our car, we lost all because we leave Ukraine without anything. It's, I don't, I don't say anything because I cry now because uh, we have all in Ukraine, we have a, a good life. Uh, I have a very good family, and uh, I don't want to leave Ukraine, but uh, the war, say, a, say another. That's why we come here, because we want to have a, some, another life. We want to live without dangers of our life. We want to live and smile every day. We don't want to to cry every day, and we 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 can't sleep. We can't sleep every day. It's boo every day, every hour, every two hours, at, at night uh, in the early in the morning. We wake up like like this and cried. That's why we're very happy to come to Poland. Thanks for all people here, thanks the Poland and thanks for all that's why. Thank you.
1: This war is turning Ukrainians' lives upside down, and that is one example, a mother, Natalie, there with her two children who had just reached uh, the border between Ukraine and Poland uh, with her two children there, wrapped in a foil blanket, and that's what many other people have been receiving treatment today. There's somebody there with a blanket around them because it is freezing at the moment, really cold, and many people here come with absolutely nothing at all. The first thing people want to do is find somewhere to stay. And lots of people who are queuing up here today, they are queuing up for coaches, big coaches that come. At the moment, one has just turned up now with blue flashing lights on top. That's because when this coach leaves packed with people full of Ukrainians, they have to then get out of this site and into places like Premishil, where they'll stay in converted sports halls into centres where there's beds, more food, more water, more clothes to help families, mums, um, children, uh, old people, young people, anyone who is trying to flee Ukraine, which at the moment is still experiencing um, a huge, huge impacts from the Russian invasion. At the moment, this, I keep saying this afternoon, this isn't a 9 to 5 job, this is 24 hours, lots of support here, and there will continually be more support to come in the coming days and certainly in the coming weeks ahead.
0: Bradley, thank you very much indeed. That was from Medica, the Polish-Ukrainian border. Now, can our visa system cope? Can the country cope if very large numbers were to come? I'm not sure there are going to be large numbers, but you never know. Let's ask Steve Valdez-Simmons, an old friend of the programme, Amnesty International's UK refugee and migrant rights director. Steve, good evening. Tell me something. Most of these people that are leaving Ukraine don't really want to leave. I mean, they're fleeing war. How many do you think ultimately could come to the United Kingdom?
4: Um, To be honest, I think you've been wise not to speculate about what that number may be. Quite clearly, large numbers of people have been forced to flee and we should expect that significant more numbers of people will do so too. We already know that there are, it looks like, hundreds of people trying to reach this country, which of course is a very small number of people compared to the the volume of people already in Poland. But nonetheless, we might expect it to grow. The government has given estimates about the number of people who might be able to come on the basis of having family here whom the government says it will support to be able to join and find safety with their family. We welcome that. So we could be seeing a very large number of people, but we really don't know yet.
0: No, and we could be seeing a large number of people from Hong Kong, and we could be seeing a very large number of people across the English Channel. Um, and, And this does give us some real problems. Do you think, in the face of all of this, that the UK's visa system can actually cope? Because I'm struck there are huge backlogs already in the system.
4: Well, I think we have to start with the bigger problem, the UK visa system is designed specifically not to cope. It isn't there to provide routes for people to find safety. There are no visas for that, which is why people who do need safety in this country make the sort of dangerous journeys that you've referred to. And goodness knows if things carry on as they are, we may see Ukrainians on those boats in the channel. This is part of the problem. If we design our system uh, to simply say yeah. no to sharing responsibility for refugees. Then we see smugglers and others making large sums of money, people on dangerous journeys, and all sorts of chaos that the country then receives with large numbers of people arriving by routes that aren't managed.
0: I would be surprised, I would be very surprised if we saw undocumented Ukrainians arriving. I think you'll find uh, that they will try and do this properly and try and do this legally and there'll be a scheme there for them if the scheme can actually cope. Let's put this another way, Steve. Is there any upper limit on the numbers that we can accept, given that we have a housing crisis, uh, given that we've got to find school accommodation? Is there any upper limit, or is this one of those situations? And I'm talking particularly about Ukraine. Is this one of those situations where we have to say anyone that wants to come can come?
4: This is one of those situations where we ought to be focusing on where's our biggest capacity. The government this time is right, if they see it through, that families are a huge source of potential support, because of course, in many circumstances, they can play host to and support the family that joined them. We haven't done that in respect of crises in the past, and we should have. The second thing, of course, is that we must share responsibility. If we do that, then yes, the international community can cope. What goes wrong is when countries turn around and won't share responsibility with each other, Some countries get left with responsibilities they can't manage, and more people end up on chaotic journeys, desperately hoping to find somewhere safe elsewhere.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Steve Valdis simmons Well, joining me now to talk about the system, because there's a massive backlog of asylum cases already. I mean, the whole thing, it seems to me, isn't fit for purpose. How on earth is it going to manage another large influx? And we don't know yet just how big those numbers might be. Christopher Cole, consultant immigration solicitor at Parks Roads Hickmotts, and a member of the Law Society's Immigration Law Committee. Uh, Christopher, it's a mess even before this, isn't it?
5: Oh, I would, I would agree with you. Um, the the system is almost broken and is struggling to cope with the immigration um, crisis that we've seen over the last few years. There is a lack of investment. There is a lack of resources put to the whole system. And so, the thought that we can, as a as a government as a country, cope with the processing of multiple visas, it seems, uh, you know far fetched to seem the, to say the least really
0: yeah it does and, and, and tell me Christopher someone that does this for a living uh, could you understand uh, through yesterday overnight and through today uh, please explain to us what actually is our policy
5: well yeah uh, <laughs> you, know, you tell me Nigel it seems to be you know <laughs> depending on whether you're speaking to pretty Patel or, or one of the other ministers that they seem to be making it up on the hoof and there seems to be no agreement as yet. I think the the difficulty is that home office and government policy for many years um, has been to, as Steve said, to keep people out and to take back control and stop people being able to migrate. And when you see a huge humanitarian crisis, when the public are calling for the um, government to help, then they're put in a bit of a dilemma. Do they stick to their, you know, you know, historical policies of being harsh on immigration and keeping everyone out? Or do they you know, have to bow down to public pressure and say, this is a humanitarian crisis and we have to help? The difficulty is the Home Office doesn't have the resources to be able to manage any sort of mass visa application process. And as you said, I think that if resources are directed away to the Ukrainian crisis, it'll just mean that there'll be Huge problems in in other areas of the whole immigration system, which is already creaking um, at best, and there will be struggles going forward. Um, you know, whichever route the Home Office and
0: decides to go down, yeah. On that depressing note, Christopher Cole, I'll say thank you very much. And I have to say if any of the Home Office and Government policies over the last few years were designed to keep people out, they haven't been very successful given the levels of net migration. In a moment we will talk energy, a subject uh, that I'm very vexed about at the moment. Um, Of course, we all want a cleaner, greener, better planet, but I think Boris's net zero plans are crazy. He doesn't appear to be listening. All of that in a moment. Well. Can our system cope? Can our visa system cope with what is coming down the track from Ukraine? Women and children fleeing that country in large numbers, 1.7 million people left in the first two weeks of this war. Certainly our immigration lawyer before the break did not seem very optimistic, a system that doesn't work even now. Some of your reactions to this, Bren says, where are they all going to live? There are no houses and hotels are fully booked with economic migrants. And I've seen that on my email over the weekend from lots of people, I have to say. Brett says, our country is full. Well, Brett, actually, I think one of the arguments that was made there that was quite powerful by Amnesty was that those that come that have got family in the UK will get taken in by those families. And that certainly would be a big help and a big, big relief. Silas says, can schools cope? Can GPs cope? Or are they still in hiding? Well, I think some GPs are back at work. Um, Can we really handle any more? Where will they all live? People that lived here their whole lives and are refused housing? Well, I have to say, Silas, I think the, the housing issue is very, very real. And when we took Farage at large up to Sunderland, one of the sources of real anger was that so many people that were coming across the English Channel were being housed in Sunderland and areas like that in the northeast, whereas the council housing lists were getting longer and longer? That had led to a lot of real upset and anger. But I do think when it comes to people genuinely fleeing a war zone, women and children fleeing a war zone, uh, I think we'll find ourselves as open-hearted as we can be. But you're right, there are huge, huge practical problems. Arako says, many are coming without visas, in fact, without any documentation every single day through the channel. Yeah, this is, this is still the issue. The issue of what's happening in the channel infuriates people. It certainly does me. And one viewer says, if this government's planning an action on Afghanistan, is there anything to go by? No. Didn't they just have one person doing overtime during the weekend at that crisis? Well, yes, I think that's right. And our senior civil servant um, in that department, of course, was away on an extended holiday. Now, energy. Those that watch this programme regularly will know uh, that I've become increasingly vexed about the government's energy strategy. You see, we import 50% of the natural gas that we need, and we need it particularly when the wind turbines don't blow. In fact, the more wind turbines we build, the more gas, ultimately, we need. Um, There's no need to import that gas. There's lots of gas in this country. And the same goes for coal. And increasingly, the same goes for oil as British and Scottish governments. Uh, Just don't give Shell, BP, any of these companies any encouragement to continue in the North Sea. And of course, we also import up to 9% of our electricity from that lovely man, President Macron. We've made ourselves wholly dependent in energy terms on other countries, albeit we're far less dependent on Mr Putin. Uh, who only gives us about, sells us about 4% of the natural gas that we buy, as opposed to Germany, who of course would literally be closed down overnight because of the disastrous policies of Angela Merkel. This week, the two drill holes, the two wells that a firm called Quadrilla sunk up in the northwest of England. Those wells designed to get natural gas They have to be filled in with concrete this week. Can you imagine anything more ludicrous at this moment in time? And as a result of that, 40 Conservative Members of Parliament and peers between them have written to the Prime Minister saying this would be an act of folly. Others of course who follow me will know uh, that I have joined and I'm helping to run a campaign saying vote for power, not for poverty. And what I'm saying is, let's become self-sufficient in energy. What I'm saying is, let's get rid of the 5% VAT on our bills. That was an explicit promise in the referendum. And what I'm also saying is, stop loading up people's electricity bills. Up to 20% of that bill is green subsidies. All of this has happened with no debate whatsoever. And if these things aren't done, it's it's a subject so vast we deserve to have a referendum on it. So I feel very, very strongly about this. And that's not, that's not wanting to turn my back on green energy, on renewable energy, on low carbon energy. And I'd love to see things like hydrogen cells become a huge success. But the fact is, we are going to need considerable amounts of fossil fuels for many, many years to come, we might just as well produce them ourselves and not be dependent on anybody else in the world. And I think one of the results that will come from what's happening in Ukraine and kind of Trump really was in the, in the vanguard of this when he talked about America first. I think people will, countries will, start to put their own interests first. And if you finish up with a genuine shortage, that could mean the lights going out in Britain. That to me would be madness. Well, joining me is Bob Ward from the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. Bob, good evening. Welcome again back to the programme. I know you've heard what I've just said, given, g- given that, we, that we will be using gas and we will be using some coal in steel production and things like that. And given that the vast majority of our cars and vans run on petrol and diesel, wouldn't it make more sense in a dangerous world and actually reduce global CO2 emissions if we became self-sufficient in these energies?
6: Well. Let's, for the moment, pretend that air pollution and climate change don't exist and just look at the case for whether we could become self-sufficient on fossil fuels. If you look at the analyses, it's simply not true that we can become self-sufficient on fossil fuels. The North Sea is a mature basin. The production of oil and gas is going down. Even though the official government policy is maximizing economic recovery, so we're pumping as much as we can at the moment, some want us to frack to get shale gas and say it was a terrible mistake to have introduced the moratorium in 2019. Well, if we hadn't had the moratorium and we went ahead and production went along the lines of the most optimistic scenarios by the industry, At the moment, this year, we would produce perhaps 1.6 billion cubic meters of natural gas from from shale gas. Now that sounds like a lot, but that's less than 2.5% of our annual consumption. So it really wouldn't make much difference to our security or indeed to energy bills. So if we can frack, if we can get shale gas out of the ground safely, so and with, with community support, I'd be in favor of it, because it has a, slow, a lower carbon footprint than shipping it in from the United States and Qatar. But at the moment, the problem with fracking here is that the places where they've tried it, it's caused small amounts of earth tremors, and there's no guarantee that they couldn't cause bigger tremors, and people just don't want to take that risk at the moment.
0: Not sure that's true. I mean, you're right. It was experimental, and there was a minor tremor, um, and that was because the correct procedures weren't followed. But, Bob, the point is this. Actually, when it comes to the North Sea, you know, when oil is at 50 bucks a barrel, the North Sea is pretty marginal. Uh, When oil is, well, it's been up to 140 today, but when oil is over 100, dollars a barrel, a lot more of the North Sea is there. But look, I'm pleased that you do at least accept the principle that if we could do these things safely in, the, in, in this country, um, that actually, that actually, that would be the right thing to do. But doesn't the same apply for manufacturing too? We've outsourced steel production, heavy engineering, and we say to ourselves that actually, ah, that's good we've produced less CO2. But actually what happens is the goods get produced in other countries under lower standards and then get shipped back to us. And and, and here's my point to you. You know, the Vote Power Not Poverty campaign, I've had left-wing critics saying I don't care about climate change. Isn't the truth of it that if we could be self-sufficient in oil, manufacture more of our own products, that actually that would reduce global CO2 output?
6: Well, remember that the reason why manufacturing's gone to other countries is because it's lower labor costs. It hasn't gone to India and China because of energy costs it's gone because it's cheaper <laughs> cheaper workers there, so it's not really a, an issue here and To be honest now, Joe, if you really want to get away from the volatility of fossil fuel prices because we know this happens periodically. We are never going to be self-sufficient in fossil fuels. There just isn't enough fossil fuels. The only realistic way we will protect ourselves is by investing much more in energy efficiency. At the moment, people are wasting a lot of money because their houses are not properly insulated. So we should be investing much more so that people are not wasting money uh, with gas that they don't really get the benefit of. And we should be moving more towards domestic clean energy Frankly, if we had carried on building more onshore wind farms, we'd be much less dependent at the moment on imports of gas. So that was a big mistake. We should be investing much more quickly in the transition to clean domestic energy because we just don't have enough of the dirty stuff to be self-sufficient, even if you uh, didn't believe in the damage it's causing by climate change and air pollution.
0: Bob Ward, thank you. Well, folks, I disagree with most of that, but on this show, you always get both shades of opinion. We are going to need gas and oil and coal for a long time to come. Yes, we want good, clean technologies too, but that's just realistic. Well, in a moment, joining me to discuss all of this is Dale Vince OBE, somebody who's been a pioneer in renewable energies. Talking Pints, I've got to... Talking Pints, I've got, a cataly- I've got to... i got to apologise. I'm really sorry, Dale Vince, that I'm not with you in the studio. It's down the line, but welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you. Now, Dale, you are something of an eco-warrior, and you run electricity You claim that it's Britain's greenest energy provider. And I know that you're somebody that started very, very small uh, with all of this. Uh, and by the way, you know, I am not against, of course I'm not against, renewable energies in any way, shape or form. It's the subsidies that give me the headache. But just begin, because uh, I read about Glastonbury, and mobile phones operating off a small windmill. Just tell me, what was the genesis uh, of you becoming a green energy provider?
7: It it probably was um, (coughs) the 10 years I lived on the road. Uh, You know, I lived in a bunch of different trucks and buses and things, and I made the stuff I lived in. I made the power uh, that ran my life and stuff (coughs) using a small windmill. Uh, And I did go to Glastonbury, I built a tower out of an old electricity pylon, got some old train batteries from a scrapyard at the bottom, rented some mobile phones and sold a phone service called Wind Phones. This is all in the um, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, I was parked up on a hill outside Stroud, where I live now and it was was windy and I saw the first wind farm built in Cornwall. And uh, I thought I could spend another 10 years living a low impact lifestyle myself or I could drop back in and try and uh, make a bigger difference and build a big windmill on the hill I was parked up on. So I just set about doing that in the early 90s.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've been doing this a hell of a long time. Now, you talk about those early wind farms in Cornwall, and I remember at some point in the 90s driving down the gate 39 past Delibold. I think Delibold was the first or the second wind farm in Cornwall. And I remember thinking, first time I saw it, goodness me, that is ugly. And now I see these monstrosities off the Essex coast, off the North Kent coast. Boris wants to build more of them. I mean, they really are the most unsightly things ever, aren't they?
7: Uh, I think you're in a minority view there, Nigel. Um, Most people think that wind turbines are graceful, beautiful structures, and they appreciate (laughs) the work that they do, you know. They make energy out (laughs) of the wind, you know, out of nothing. And Really important thing with renewable energy. I I heard your previous guy, Bob, speaking about fossil fuels, and I understand what you're saying about net zero. Important thing about renewable energy is it will never run out. And we can't power ourselves completely by fossil fuels because we don't have enough. But even if we could, fossil fuels in the North Sea and fracking, if it ever got going again, will all run out by 2030. That's just eight years from now. We've got to have an answer that endures longer than eight years from now. That's renewable energy.
0: Yeah, I have to say all, all the scare stories about energy resources running out have always pre has always proved to be wrong as we keep finding more and more energy. Look, you know, my argument on this is that the more we rely on wind energy, the more we need gas as a backup, because as you and I both know, we get periods of time when the wind just doesn't blow. So I'm not fighting you over this. I'm, I, I'm not arguing that wind doesn't have a role to play. But isn't the point about this, Dale, and, and this is what upsets people, we've had a situation here, where, and you know this as well as I do, rich landowners... Being paid in some cases thousands of pounds every week just to have wind turbines on their land, and the bill for that being picked up by ordinary people, isn't there something really immoral about that? And about the fact no one's ever been told the truth? <clears throat> well,
7: I think the rent that landowners have for hosting windmills is is not out of proportion to the rent they have for hosting mobile phone towers or any other kind of structure on their land. If you want to look at who's benefited most from rent for uh, wind, uh, take a look at the royal family through the crown estates. I mean, I, I think it runs into the billions, the rent being paid to use the seabed to, to host offshore windmills. But look, I think this kind of economic envy type argument is, um, is a distraction from what's really happening. Pre this crisis, our countries spend 50 billion pounds a year bringing fossil fuels here just to burn them. That's a billion pounds a week. If we spent that 50 billion building renewable energy infrastructure, we could have 100% of our electricity made here in Britain and create a vast new industry of long-term sustainable jobs and make an enormous difference to our economy because that money leaves our economy every year and and it weakens us when it does that. We could change all of that. I'm with you on the energy independence front. The thing is, yeah. we can't do it with fossil fuels, but we can do it with renewable energy.
0: Well, I don't agree with that. I think we've got vast reserve. I mean, certainly gas. I mean, some estimates are we've got a trillion pounds worth of gas under our feet in this country. Others think it could be as much as two. But you know, that that perhaps is that perhaps is by the by. But the point, I'm, the point I want to get back to, Dale, is you know, it's ordinary folk on their bills that have picked up the tab for this can, and this is my question to you, can the renewable sector work without taxpayer subsidy?
7: <laughs> Not only can it, but it does. So offshore wind is, is cheaper than anything else we can build right now and it has something called a contract for difference and, and it's generating under the market price. It's paying the government right now for generation. Solar, which hasn't been banned onshore in our country, onshore wind has been banned, as Bob said. Solar is being built now without any form of government support whatsoever. We're building two solar farms right now ourselves. So, I mean, the answer is yes, Nigel. Renewable energy doesn't need a subsidy. But if you look at fossil fuels, we're putting billions into the North Sea to subsidise fossil fuels.
0: Well, I mean, you know, as I say... At some point in time, there is no doubt that we're going to find ways, and it could be hydrogen cells. I don't know what it is. At some point, we're going to find ways that we'll use less in terms of fossil fuels. But for the moment, we can't survive without them. But I I just wonder, I mean, because it seems to me that the greenest form of energy, the lowest carbon form of energy, that is at the same time the most reliable form of energy, and that is there. 24-7, 24-7, 365 days a year, is nuclear energy. And and I just wonder, you know, given that we've got these small nuclear reactors in the back of our submarines, that there's talk in North America, Canada, um, and in the United Kingdom, there is talk that, you know, we can make nuclear power stations a fraction of the size of those 1960s monstrosity. I just wonder, do you see nuclear has been part of the mix going on from here.
7: Well, I think nuclear is part of the mix right now, and we should max it out. We, could, we should run it as long as it's safe to run it. But we shouldn't plan to build anymore because they take 10 years to plan, and they take 10 years to build, and then they take another 10 years before they even break even on a carbon budget basis. And it's the most expensive electricity that's ever been generated, and it's not going down mm. in price. It's just not getting any better. And of course we leave a toxic legacy for thousands of years and we don't know how to contain it. And we're spending 120 billion a year right now just containing what we've already created. So no, nuclear is not a part of our future other than what's currently running and we should run it until it can't be run safely anymore.
0: So, how do we getting back to this point about? I mean, you know, I, I mentioned nuclear because, and I understand all the problems around it, but I mentioned it because it is utterly reliable in the sense that it's there all the time. What do we use as backup for wind, for solar? I mean, gas, it seems, is the best and easiest option, is it? I mean, I mean, what other solutions do you think there are to that problem of intermittency?
7: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an important issue to tackle. And what we've got for that is a concept called the smart grid. So uh, right now and historically, we've had something I like to think of as dumb demand. You know, we all just flick a switch at the same time. There's no science in that. And that causes enormous peaks on the grid at certain times of the day. And then we have enormous troughs at other times of the day. One of the problems of nuclear power is it has to run baseload. It can't meet the peaks or the troughs. It just has to run like this. So it's not actually as perfect as it sounds. Uh, Our current grid switches generators in to hit the peaks and then turns them off to hit the troughs. What we need to do is control demand as well, and that's starting to happen in real time. We can control uh, demand. There are certain loads that can be turned off for a few minutes or for half an hour. We've got grid-scale battery storage, which is coming on stream now in big amounts. There are other forms of storage as well, using gravity, for example. There are tidal lagoons that we could build. The tide is uh, predictable 100 years in advance, and we can store vast quantities of water in these lagoons and release it, like a big battery, when we need the power. There are many Many ways we can do this. We are forty percent green electricity on the grid today, without a problem. We can get on a 100% good.
0: Well, in ten years. Well, well, on a good day, yes. But on a bad day, we get a big anti-cyclone, sits over the British Isles, and we do have a bit of a problem. Look, I don't doubt. I don't doubt. You know, with what you've done. You know, you've 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 innovated, um, you know, and this is an evolving industry. Uh, and I'm asking, I'm asking tough questions about it, because I just feel we've not really had a proper debate about the whole thing. But tell us a bit more about your company and how it operates, how many staff you've got, um, and, and have you made your fortune yet? <laughs>
7: Yeah. So look, uh, we started in 1995. We were the world's first green energy company. We made this available for the first time anywhere. We pioneered uh, big wind and big solar in Britain. We brought green gas to Britain. We haven't even talked about that. And that's a super opportunity for us. Uh, We're working on geothermal, the idea of tidal lagoons. And you're quite right about the wind. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow. That's a fact. But the sun shines, The tides come and go. Geothermal is like nuclear. It's 24-7, 365 days of the year, and it's just starting to be exploited in Cornwall. So the answer to to 100% renewable energy on the grid is to have a mix of technologies that are working at different times of the year and the day and and under different weather conditions with grid storage. Uh, But to come back to your question, we're about 800 people. I think our turnover is about 300 million quid this year or something like that. We build about 100 megawatts of generation. We supply about 200000 homes. And we're here to make a difference. We're here to change how energy is made and used in Britain. And we think we've done a fair job of that so far, but there's, there's further to go. And this energy crisis that began before the war in Ukraine, it's just been exacerbated by that. That shows us there's, a, there's another real economic imperative to being energy independent in our country.
0: No, there really is. And, but yes, but you are also a private company there to make profit. And you didn't answer my second part of the question. Have you made your fortune yet?
7: <laughs> no, I laughed at that. I answered that first. Uh, look, um, <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are actually um, a mission led company. We're not here to make money for the sake of making money. Uh, we're here to make money to put back into our mission to change the way energy is made. And that's the way we roll. I like to express it in the form of a question you may have heard before. Do you live to eat or do you eat to live? As a company, we eat to live, but most companies live to eat, Therefore, uh, by which I mean they exist to make profit for the sake of making profit. We don't do that. We're a mission-driven company that makes money to put it back into our mission.
0: Delvince, you've been recognized with an OBE. You have a passion for what you do, uh, which, 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 which which I commend you for. Uh, and look, I'm not your enemy, but I just want us to have a big, honest, open debate about energy, about our future. And I thank you. And I regret not being in a London studio with you, but I thank you for coming on Talking Pints. That was delightful. Uh, thank Vince. you.
7: Listen, I appreciate being here. Thanks for the beer and good luck, whatever you're doing.
0: Thank you. Well, we've certainly had a lot of different opinions expressed today about energy. And I have given uh, the Green Energy Lobby uh, you know, every chance to put their point of view. And what they do agree on is the idea. Because really, it's crazy, isn't it? How can you fight the idea of being energy self-sufficient? And I want the UK to be a net exporter of energy, not, as we are now, a massive net importer. Really interesting. Boris Johnson this morning, responding to all of this, said that we have to increase natural gas production to make ourselves in the West less dependent on President Putin. Yes, he's urged America, Canada and the Gulf to produce more gas, just not us. He did later on in the day say that all options were on the table. And I think, actually, Johnson's energy policy is coming under some quite heavy pressure. And if I can add to that, well, you can bet your life I will do so. Now, we've got time for a few Barrage the Farages, which for once have been printed out for me, but I haven't cheated, I promise. Adrian asks, how will a referendum on net zero solve the cost of living crisis, seeing as it took four years to get Brexit done? Wouldn't it be cheaper and easier to campaign for a general election? Adrian... Those three demands that I talked about earlier on in the program—self-sufficiency, removal of the 5 percent VAT on our bills, and ending green subsidies—if those things are done, the need for a referendum actually won't be there. And I think this is one of those campaigns. We're calling for a referendum to have a national debate. That national debate is now unavoidable, and I think it's actually winnable, Um, and it may happen sooner than you think, at least I hope so. Peter asks me, if the Chinese invade Taiwan after the Paralympics, could the West respond in the same way they have to Putin's invasion of Ukraine? No, not really, Uh, and the reason for that's quite simple. Uh, In relative terms, the Russian economy is not that big it's about the same size as Spain's. China's economy is rapidly approaching being the biggest economy in the world, and we are very dependent upon it. So shutting China out would be virtually impossible. But there's something else about Taiwan that really worries me, and it's this. Despite the billions of dollars that are being spent in America on semiconductors, without which our cars, our mobile phones, our modern life doesn't operate, still, Taiwan has a virtually monopoly on manufacture of semiconductors. If the Chinese did invade Taiwan, far from us putting sanctions on them, they could, if they wanted, close us down. Let's hope it never happens. Brad asks, how long will it be before the wider public understand just how much net zero will cost? Philip Hammond, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, reckons that net zero will cost a trillion one trillion pounds, and it could cost even more. And I think, you know, once again, I'm going to say this, the plans I'm putting forward are practical plans. They will create tens of thousands of well-paid jobs. They'll create income for the exchequer. And we will not be dependent upon Mr. Putin, Qatar, President Macron, or anybody else. Surely it makes sense. Mick asks me, Do you have a favourite or any favourite ales that you're fond of from Yorkshire? Well, this is a Catalonian one. Uh, Fiexton's Old Peculiar is the answer I'm going to give you. But there's also a brewery in Yorkshire called Sam Smith's. They've got 16 pubs in London, and I have to say their beers are pretty good. Last question. Who would be best to deal with the current crisis with Putin? Would it be Thatcher or would it be Churchill? An impossible question uh, to answer. But I have to say, uh, Churchill was absolutely a warrior to his fingertips. I suspect if we had people like Churchill, or even, dare I say it, President Trump in the White House, Putin actually wouldn't be doing what he is now. But with somebody as weak as Biden, well, you can't really be all that surprised. Thank you for joining me this evening. In a moment, you're going to be handed over to Mark Stein, and I'll see you at 7pm tomorrow evening.